The pandemic has hit us hard, and healthcare workers are our first and last lines of defense. So while they're looking out for us, who's looking out for them? There has never been a more critical time to address the mental health of our healthcare community. This is Lift the Mask, voices of heroes in the silent pandemic. Join the Quell Foundation and Hartford Health's Dr. John Santopietro as we provide a podcast for healthcare workers discussing their psychological traumas associated with continual exposure to the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello, my name is John Santopietro. I'm a psychiatrist and I am the physician-in-chief at the Behavioral Health Network of Hartford HealthCare, headquartered in Hartford, Connecticut. During the pandemic, I have been part of a team providing support to healthcare workers on the front lines, and I have a particular interest in making sure that their stories get told. The Quell Foundation has put together this podcast in order to lift up the voices of those on the front lines as a way of reaching those who are still out there in the hope that they will be inspired to reach out for the help and support that is there for them. While there's been a lot of reporting about the pandemic in the news and even about the front lines of healthcare, what's unique about this podcast is that you get to hear the stories from the people that lived it and actually are still living it. I would also encourage other leaders to listen into this podcast because there are many lessons and clues about what makes good leadership in a pandemic and a crisis. It is my pleasure to welcome you to Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in the Silent Pandemic. Very pleased to be here and to be able to spend some time with uh, Kristen. And and Kristen, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so um, my name is Kristen. I am a CVICU nurse and I work in New York City during the pandemic and my CVICU turned completely 100% COVID positive. For those that might not know CV, that's cardiovascular? Correct. Cardiovascular, uh, also surgical. And how does that differ from the standard ICU? The standard ICU would be a medical ICU in which that is where pulmonary and normal COVID patients would go to. However, I work on a cardiac unit, cardiac specific. So normally I wouldn't get any COVID patients. However, there was such an influx I think my hospital has about 60 ICU beds and we had just about 300 ventilated patients. So when I normally wouldn't get the COVID patient, there's just such a high amount of them that they came into the cardiac specific unit. Wow. So it sounds like you guys really had more than your share of COVID patients. And can you tell us a little bit about what that was like as a nurse working on the front lines? What are some of the uh, important aspects of that experience, especially when it really hit during the surge? So I think one of, one of the biggest things was the change that happened so quickly of the amount of patients we had to take care of. Mm-hmm. So normally in an ICU, we have one sick patient, sometimes two sick patients, but during COVID, there was such an influx of patients that we started taking care of four to six really sick intubated patients. So that was very challenging to just constantly for 12 hours be so hypervigilant, now taking care of double to triple our workload. Wow. So you're already on the front lines of healthcare, working in a cardiovascular ICU, which is not easy work. You know, you're used to a certain pace. 
and almost overnight it doubles or triples, you know, maybe quadruples just in terms yeah. of the, the intensity and the number of patients and how complicated they are medically. What was that? How quickly did that happen? And what was that like? I would say within three to four days. I didn't expect that we would have COVID patients, like I said, because we were cardiac specific. I had one shift where I was there and we had no COVID patients. And my next shift, a couple of days later, we were almost 100% full. So Kristen, it was the first thing that comes to your mind is just the pace and the intensity of the work. And, you know, once you sort of realized that that had changed, what were some of the other things that you know, your pace could have changed because there was another 9-11 or there was a hurricane, right? But this was an infectious disease, right? So when did that start playing a role in your experience that this wasn't your typical kind of natural disaster, but what we're dealing with here is a, an infectious disease? I'd say very early on, especially as a nurse, you have the drive and you've been working at being very compassionate towards patients. And then kind of this innate fear pops in where you're morally distressed between picking between, you know, I'm a nurse at the bedside and I've been working like this for years of being close to patients and being compassionate to patients, but also like a literal innate feeling of fear and trying to protect yourself, you know, like in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the basic need is safety. And that was pretty much ripped away from us. We didn't even have that, the safety of going into work. We didn't know, you know, what it would be like. And we really took for granted all of the things like PPE and safe staffing ratios. So pretty quickly, I realized that that was happening and a very scary feeling. Yeah, it really, it's a really powerful term when you say moral distress. And I want to pick up on that a little bit because it's very powerful when you say it. And again, just to remember that before this hit, you're not doing an easy job. You're putting yourself on the line as it is on the front lines of medicine. But, you know, one of the things that came across pretty early was this sense of moral distress. And one of the things that related to was you were saying your own innate sense of safety. Can you say a little bit more about that? Is that something that wouldn't typically be on your radar screen and now it was on your radar screen? And, and how was that different and how did that impact your work? I think mainly because we just didn't know anything about the disease. In the first week, we had ER doctors, ER nurses that were sick and ventilated and we saw our own getting sick. We didn't know much about the virus. So I think that was one of the big things. Usually we have the science behind it to, you know, our knowledge to protect us and also the safety, like I said, of the PPE. And we didn't even have that as well. So those were the two main issues that I think really scared us. And also not knowing about the virus, you just catastrophize and think of all the horrible things that could go wrong. <laughs> I mean, it's something we all, I think, you know, we're dealing with across the country. And I think one of the things this podcast is highlighting is that people on the front lines, you know, some of it may have been catastrophizing, but you were actually seeing things with your own eyes. Did you say that you were seeing some of your own staff that were getting sick? Yeah, correct. Within, I mean, the first week or two, I think all of the nurses on my unit, all of the doctors on my unit, we really took to heart when we would get one of our own ER doctors or ER nurses ventilated, people from my health system that were 
really sick and even family members of doctors and nurses would come in and we would see them, some would pass. So I think that was something very hard hitting for us, you know, like this can affect us, this can touch us. No, that's not theoretical. I mean, you're seeing it. And, you know, I think one of the things that's come across and getting to know you a little bit is, you know, what you were seeing with your own eyes that other people that aren't on the front lines weren't seeing, you know. So one element of this moral distress is there's a new factor now. Before this pandemic, you know, you'd go to work and I guess there'd be some risk that you could pick up an infectious disease, but it wasn't on your mind all the time. But now you're walking into work every day and you have to, some part of your brain, like you said, innately is saying this may not be safe, right? So you have to overcome that to come in. And you said something about PPE and what was that like? And how did that relate to that sense of safety? So I would say in the first couple weeks, we ran out of PPE. Prior to the pandemic, we were always scolded and watched to make sure that we use PPE appropriately. And then all of a sudden on the flip of a switch, we're now supposed to completely take out what we've learned about PPE and reuse masks and reuse gowns or use gowns and masks in multiple patients' rooms. It was very conflicting information we were getting and kind of circle back to what I said earlier, we were doing one thing before the pandemic. And then all of a sudden we were told to switch and told to believe that what we were switching to was effective. And again, very moral distressing of what, what are we supposed to do? We're told many different things, you know, it changed daily. I would say not even weekly, it changed daily of what we were supposed to do. But at one point we'd each had one N95 mask for it. We reused it for months. So I take two things from that. One is that part of your brain that's instinctive, like you said, must have been taking in that information about changing the the requirements for PPE and whether you were aware of it or not, must have been thinking, this doesn't feel safe. The other thing is that being a nurse, especially you know on the front lines in the ICU, is not an easy job. And it takes a lot of training and practice and skill and you have to get in a routine and you really have to master what you're doing right and it sounds like you're in a routine but then this thing hits and all of a sudden a lot of things are changing in the routine right was that your experience yeah definitely as an icu nurse you do you have to be flexible and you know you are pretty accustomed to taking the sickest of the sick patients but I have never experienced such an influx of acuity and the amount of patients like we did during COVID. And, you know, I even give shout out to some of the other nurses who volunteered their time. There was, you know, outpatient surgical nurses who they're not doing surgeries anymore. And they would come into the ICU because we were the most hard hit and they would offer anything they can offer. Um, You know, at one point, I think I was kind of a leadership role among six other nurses just to give them delegated tasks. And I am thankful that they came in not accustomed to taking the sickest of the sick patients and they threw themselves into that environment. So I always give props to them as well for those people who volunteered. So in a crisis like that, you you got to see some of the best sides of people, it sounds like. Yeah, definitely. Everyone kind of stepped up and took on a lot of roles that they normally don't. Were there also times when you saw some of the other side of people, maybe some of the worst sides, or was it all pretty good? There definitely were times that um, they were really difficult. Personally, I think it's um, 
hard to show your weakness when you're a healthcare professional, you know, and I think this is one of the reasons that we do need to reach out um, for support and resources regarding our mental health, because while we're in the hospital, A, we just have a lot of adrenaline because we're dealing with people's lives and B, we kind of want to be the best healthcare professional we can be, but maybe you'll also kind of fake it till you make it and seem like the best healthcare professional. And you want to be that nurse and you want to be that doctor that can handle anything. So I feel like a lot of nurses and doctors are masking how hard it actually was and we're putting on brave faces. So maybe I didn't see the worst of it um, as much. And I think, again, that's one of the ideas behind talking with you and folks like you who went through this on the front lines is to try to figure out, you know, what are some of the barriers to people reaching out for help? And, you know, you said that there's this desire to not show weakness or or there's like a part of being a healthcare provider on the front lines that do not want to show weakness. And, And it sounds like that is a significant barrier to reaching out. How do you think, like, what makes the difference? We want to talk a little bit about how you managed that and were you able to recognize what was going on and and reach out? So for me personally, during the pandemic, you're working so hard on your days that you're at work. And I noticed this a lot with coworkers that they said it was kind of our off days that everything really sunk in. And we were, you know, of course, isolated, but really hit of how impactful this pandemic was. So I reached out to an online therapy service. It's called Talkspace. And it was great during the pandemic because you couldn't go in and see a therapist, but it was all through an app. Actually, it was very easy to use. And that is how I reached out. I know a lot of hospitals had great services that they offered to nurses and doctors. Personally, I was so exhausted after my shifts you know, even contemplating staying for an extra hour to go see the hospital therapist was very tiresome. So for me, the online therapy service was able to do it when I was free or feeling extra down. It was, you know, a good service. Well, that's really interesting. So, um, you know, one of the things that it seems like was helpful about the online support and counseling was that it was convenient. So, um, you know, you could do it when you wanted to. You didn't have to, like you said, stay another hour in in a building. You know, you were talking earlier about one of the barriers being acknowledging, you know, weakness or, you know, things that keep people from reaching out. Was it also, was there some aspect of the online support that made it easier to reach out because it was sort of anonymous or was that not your experience? Yeah, no, that was definitely my experience as well. I'm semi new to my unit. And I know this across the country that any either new nurse, new doctor, new to the unit, I'm sure new residents feel this way when they're rotating, you know, you don't want to be that nurse or doctor that can't handle a workload. I also find in multiple units I've been in that sometimes leadership can give a false sense of, you know, support or encouragement when you do take a really hard assignment or you do something that may seem a little above and beyond on the unit, but really it's just taxing and not appropriate. And so you are rewarded for that. And you get this sense of, Oh, if I'm always doing the hardest work, if I'm always 
taking the hardest patients, then that's, you know, how I'm going to get good. And that's how, you know, leadership will see I'm a good nurse, but really you shouldn't have to take on those just because of the false sense of support from that. And I didn't want to be that nurse that couldn't take on an assignment. And so the anonymous aspect was really great for me. And I'm sure for many other nurses, because they don't want to come off as that nurse that needs help. Yeah, it's really interesting. You've said leadership a couple of times, and I just wonder if to talk with you a little bit more about, you know, and you said you even had a little leadership, something of a leadership role there at some point as well. I mean, is there something that leaders can learn from this pandemic, you know, a better way of doing leadership? I guess good leadership is about inspiring to do things, you know, as a team and maybe things they didn't think they could do, right? Do you have thoughts about leadership's role in having an impact on whether people reach out for help or not? I think to have a role in leadership, it was really important for you to be authentic and transparent. Mm. I know at every level of the hospital down from, you know, nurses, doctors, and all of management, it was difficult. The pandemic was really difficult. So I think the transparency of, I have this information and I'm going to pass it on, or I don't have any information and I'm going to pass it on. I think mm. that's really helpful and really supportive to let, you know, your staff know that you can reach out. I also watched mm. a podcast recently and it did say, like I had mentioned, newer nurses or younger nurses only about, I think it was 10 to 15% feel comfortable reaching up to their managers and higher ups regarding their well-being. yet. Tenure nurses, I think like 60 to 70% felt comfortable. Mm. So I think being a leader, you have to reach out to those different age groups, to those different ethnicities and all demographics, because I do think there's a disparity there. That's really interesting. So as a leader, being sensitive to maybe needing to reach out more, even to people who are newer in the career, I didn't know that. Of course, you've talked about a lot of the barriers to reaching out. I think you said something at one point when we were talking before about feeling like you can't say no to being uh, given more tasks. And I think another thing you may have said about leaders is, and I can't remember if this happened or didn't happen, but good leaders every once in a while just stop things and say, is everybody okay? What was your experience around that? So I did have an experience with my manager and she did that. She kind of had, we have a huddle every single day and one of the huddles she didn't talk about the, what we should or shouldn't be doing on the unit. She just said, are you guys all okay? Like she literally said, I'm scared. How about you guys? And I think it's important to come together and not only talk about the positives because sometimes you're just masking over all of the negatives. Like you do need to talk about the negatives and in order to build resiliency, just know, okay, this is how we're all feeling and this is the level we're at. And now let's try to do something to fix that or um, just having a pause to realize that we are going through this and not, you know, rushing through it. Yeah. What was that like for you? It sounds like when you said authentic for somebody, to, a leader to say, I'm, I'm scared. How about you guys? What was that like for you? Were you surprised by it? Yeah, I definitely was surprised by it. You know, kind of like what I said before, we all kind of put on a brave face and for her to be the first one to say, Mm -hmm. This is scary. You know, I'm struggling getting through this. I think it kind of opened doors a little bit for everyone to feel comfortable enough to say, okay, yep, I'm scared. <laughs> this is yeah. happening. Sort of like gives permission for other people. That's what's coming across as you talk, Kristen, here is, you know, 
really clear about the barriers to people reaching out. You know, you don't want to show weakness. Um, you, you want to feel strong. And one part of it is the role that leaders can play in creating an environment where it's okay to reach out, actually maybe looking out to for people who may be less likely to reach out, maybe being authentic themselves and being, you know, a little more revealing can be helpful. What do you think, because you were able to reach out, but like you said, I mean, a good percentage of people don't and probably didn't, right? So internally, you know, let's say to healthcare providers, what do you think makes a difference in the person, like in the individual as to whether they decide to reach out or not? Like, had you been thinking about, have you ever done anything like the online counseling before? No, I had not done any type of therapy service or online counseling. Nothing. So how did it even like come into your mind? I mean, did somebody else mention it to you? Did you think of it? How did you, how did that happen? Yeah. So I had a coworker who had mentioned the online therapy service and I was kind of thinking about it, but obviously had the restrictions because of COVID and the isolation that we couldn't do the conventional therapy. Um, Mm -hmm. And she was the one that brought up the online therapy service. She said she really liked it. Another thing for me personally was there was just so much going on and so much to talk about. You can only talk to your coworkers about it so much because everyone is going through the same issues and you didn't, you know, I didn't want to be constantly complaining. And then on the other hand, you know, you can talk to family and friends, but they also might not completely understand what you are going through. So I kind of found a difficult to find a path to who to reach out to, who to exactly talk to. And um, that's why I started to lean towards, you know, a therapist to really help understand what I was going through, how to help me, you know, sort all these troubles in my head. So that's really interesting. So what was that like for you in the beginning? I mean, how did you find a kind of a match, you know, with a counselor online? and, And then how did it What did it feel like when you started talking? Like you said, it's a little different than just talking with your friends or your family, sorting things out. What was that like? So the way they had us do it is um, they kind of give a profile of the therapist and you pick one based off of um, what their education and specialty is and what you think you would need and benefit from. And then starting out. So I work and live in New York City And I felt like she already had a small grasp on what was kind of going on with healthcare workers and people living in such a condensed area and trying to isolate. So I felt like she did understand to a certain extent my issues because, you know, a lot of people were going through it. But then Mm -hmm. at the same time, my specific troubles and how to help me get through those just cognitively and physically it did take a little bit of time of just kind of explaining and getting to know each other, but I would say very quickly we were able to establish a relationship and get to talking about helpful tips and tricks and resources. It's really helpful. So if I were, uh, let's say I were a nurse and, and coming to you now and saying, you know, I'm sort of, I've heard about therapy, but I don't really know what it is. You know, I heard you did it. What's different about therapy than just like talking to my friends? What would you say? I would say it's easier to be more open. It's easier to really, you know, let go and get deeper down into how you're feeling. And then obviously the therapist is trained in what they do. So they are really good at it, Mm -hmm, (laughs) even mm -hmm. though some friends are great. 
And what's the it that they like? How would you, if I'm your friend, I say, well, what do you mean they're good at it? They're good at what? I would say breaking down what you're feeling into realizing why you're feeling it. It's a safe space, being more open about safely talking about really your struggles and very specific, you know, symptoms you're having. If you're having anxiety, if you can't sleep, I had a lot of friends who said they couldn't sleep. And, you know, you may think just that's on a surface. Oh, I can't sleep or I have anxiety when I go to work and having a therapy service just really breaks that down into building blocks of this is exactly why you can't sleep. Try this, or this is why you're having anxiety going into work. And you really crush it down into the nitty gritty and start to realize, Oh, well, I actually have an issue with, you know, taking care of patients X, Y, Z. And then from there, it's easier to change habits, change mindsets and grow from that. Wow. That's really helpful actually. And so you you did find it helpful. I did. Yes. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go back a little bit to this moral distress concept because I think it's really powerful. And again, when we had talked before, there was another thing that I thought I heard was linked to it. I mean, so what, what we've said so far is the way in which, you know, your own personal safety was a new thing, you know, and, and on the radar screen in a different way and how distressing that is because you're there to take care of other people. But I think there was something you had said, and I'm trying to remember about as a nurse and as a healthcare provider, you're really good at connecting with people. You know, that's what you really, especially nursing, I mean, by the bedside, you know, that relationship is so precious, but something about the pandemic, you you didn't have the opportunity to connect. In fact, maybe you had to disconnect. Is that right? Yeah, correct. I think it was a very fine line. So like you said, nurses are at the bedside. We're very drawn to being compassionate towards patients. And in many ways, nurses did find ways to be caring towards patients when it was almost impossible. You know, we did have that innate fear of we didn't even want to go in the patient's room, but still we were able, you know, you go in all gowned up and you have PPE and I'm sure the patient just feels completely isolated as well, but we did find ways to connect with them, to connect with family, but then it gets to a certain point, you know, at one point we were experiencing just so many deaths and so many patients that you have this residual, this moral distress residual that's just Mm -hmm. left over from the day and you need to separate work from your home life. You can't bring that all home all the time. Mm -hmm. So it's that emotional Mm -hmm. intelligence of this is work and I am compassionate and empathetic towards these patients, but at the same time, I can't get too connected and Mm -hmm. bring it home all the time because that does lead to burnout. That's really interesting. So uh, the image that comes to mind when you're saying this is that, you know, you have and nurses have, it's almost like a psychological muscle for connecting that's bigger than average, right? You know, that's stronger than the average person. And that's what makes you good at what you do to be able to form connections, you know, when other people couldn't. I mean, all that bedside care and people are in states that other people wouldn't be drawn to them, right? But having that big psychological muscle for connection also leaves you vulnerable to being more sensitive to watching the horror of people not getting better. And like you said, dying or being on ventilators, it's just amazing that you were able to get through that. When you said we were able, we did find ways to connect. What did you mean? Like when it was really hard, we did find ways to connect. What were some examples of that? 
Well, one example that I saw multiple times through nursing and through doctors, I mean, was the awesome ability that we had with technology and not normally do we FaceTime patients and their families because families can come in and visit, but, you know, we would get gammed up. We would put our phones in like biohazard bags. They limited the amount of time that we could be in the room with the patient just to decrease the exposure, but we used that time wisely. And we were able to just either just talk to the patient. We were able to FaceTime their family, which I think helped a lot of patients out, you know, when you're going through something so hard and you can't even talk to your family, we don't allow phones. So that was one really cool thing I saw. We, you know, FaceTime is very popular, but we normally don't FaceTime with our own personal devices, patients and families, but we made it work. I think a lot of people in the country heard stories about that, but, you know, just generally in the news, but I don't think they really get a picture unless they were dealing with a family member of what that was like. So you were able to turn the tables on, you know, before you said all of the norms were, you know, kind of messed up with processes around PPE, you were able to kind of use that to your advantage when it came to finding innovative ways to connect with people. But literally, if people didn't have the experience, what literally was it like? I mean, you, you know, you would be by the patient's bedside. Sometimes they'd be intubated. Sometimes they'd not. They'd be able to talk. The family would be on the FaceTime. How did it work? So, mo- yeah, because I work in the ICU, most of my patients were intubated. But even for the family's sake, it was calming to them to at least be able to see their family member, for them to see what we are doing in the hospital to say we are very intensely monitoring them and giving them the best care. If they can't see that and they're just at home thinking about it, sometimes they don't really believe that their family member is getting the best care. So even if they were intubated, we still did try to connect with the families. And yeah, with the PPE, it would be two gowns, um, two masks, face shields, goggles. We looked like aliens at the bedside of these patients you know, you're just nonstop sweating and you're lightheaded from the masks, but you know, you have to do it and you have to go into the patient's rooms. So we did, unfortunately, you know, we have so many patients and we did have a very large amount of patients pass away. And, you know, you're just running through all of these, this workload that you have to do just nonstop one after another. And if a patient did pass away, then you had to get on to the next one and just keep, keep, keep mm-hmm. moving. Um, so one thing that, you know, bringing it back to what did we do to feel connected to the patients? Um, I know a lot of hospitals around the country do this and it's a pause. Mm-hmm. And it's just after a patient passes away, I do completely get that there's more patients to take care of and we need to move on to the next thing, but that was a human being and that, you know, their life just passed away. So what we would do is just take 30 seconds of silence to really acknowledge that what just happened. So it was very impactful. That's really a powerful story. And I I did in my own experience during the the surge up here in Connecticut, which wasn't as bad as New York, part of what I heard and talking with people was the loss of of rituals, right? So people couldn't be with their family members, they were dying and they couldn't have funerals. And so it's almost as though you filled the gap and had a kind of mini ritual for them. You know, I wonder if we could go back a little bit because I think it's really inspiring that, you know, you're you're talking with us about 
not only how difficult it is on the front line in general and during a pandemic and all the barriers that there are to, to reaching out that you were able to overcome and others, some others were able to overcome. But also, um, I wonder if people would be interested to hear, you, you said that the, the, the counseling was helpful. Can you be more specific? I mean, some people might be out there and they may have had similar, I don't know if you want to call them symptoms or, or things that, you know, you were struggling with that you thought, hmm, I, maybe I need to get some help with this and, and then did get some help. Were there some specific things, you know, you, you sort of touched on a few, maybe sleep, this and that, that you would talk about? I think, and I've heard this from other nurses as well, you kind of are going through the motions. It was for me on my off days when I really started kind of setting in just how severe everything was. You know, I heard one of my coworkers say that she was talking to a friend who was a nurse and the friend had said, I just don't feel like myself. Mm. She didn't know exactly what it was, you know, we're mm -hmm. all going through the struggles, all nurses and doctors are going through struggles, but just kind of, I don't feel like myself. And I think that's how it kind of started for me as well. Like I'm noticing maybe small changes and this is my job. I am good at my job, but it was on my off days that I started realizing I'm, you know, a little bit more sad than normal or, yeah you know, I don't want to go into work and normally I have no issue. And I'm, you know, starting to realize that is this not what I want to do or is something else off? So it was kind of small changes. Like yeah. that nurse said, I just don't feel like myself. Interesting. That's really helpful. So, you know, we sort of take for granted that we kind of have a sense of ourselves until it changes. And you're like, wait a minute, this doesn't seem like me. And mood, you know, you talk about sad and motivation or energy to go into work, which normally was a problem for you. And now you're thinking, hey, a minute, that seems like I got to really gear up to get into work. You had mentioned sleep a little bit. What did you notice there? So for me, I would have some very dramatic things that would happen at work. For example, you know, patients coding, which is their heart stopping and we having very massive codes or just very intense moments at work. And so for me, I kept replaying those over in my head, you know, kept thinking that was happening under my care. What did I do? What happened? Sometimes in medicine, you don't know exactly what's happening all the time. And I would think, oh, maybe it was this that I did. Maybe I was that that I did in these moments would just replay and replay. And mm -hmm. sometimes they would just pop into my head unknowingly. And before I knew it, I was slowly, slowly, slowly losing sleep. And then on the other side, you're going to work just exhausted purely from the work you're doing. And also now because you're just ruminating at night. And how important is sleep or was sleep just in general and during this crisis? Well, obviously, you know, we're, especially in the ICU, you're working with extremely potent drugs and um, every little decision you make is very impactful on a human being's life. Like if you make one slip up, I mean, you have to be so hyper vigilant your entire day. And obviously you can tell that if you don't get enough sleep and your brain misses just one number, one thought process, then you can really change the course of someone's illness, someone's life. So I think, especially mm -hmm. for healthcare workers, sleep is extremely important. Is that one of the things that you worked on with your counselor? Yeah, I worked on one resource and tactic that we had talked about was um, a worry journal. You know, instead of having these worrying thoughts and ruminating thoughts, 
happen at night, which was keeping me from sleeping, she said, have a set time to worry. So on my off days, I would, you know, keep a worry journal and I would kind of not force myself, but just let those thoughts out and hope that when I do go to bed, it's kind of like, oh, I already, you know, got those things out of the way. And um, hopefully my mind doesn't lead me back to there. It really is amazing how important sleep is. I, I've heard about some studies that say it's even more important than vaccinations in terms of your, you know, your immunity. You know, vaccinations are still important, by the way. As we're just winding down here, Kristen, first of all, I just want to say it really is, is it's an honor to, you know, be able to share some time with you and, and hear your story, particularly because of what you went through on the front lines. And, you know, you do this, you know, not for yourself, but for other people. But then even for you now to say, well, I want to, I, I went through this, but I want to do something with it. I want to bring my story out there to try to help other people. And I, as just as we're winding down, I just a couple of questions. One is, you know, wh- where are you now? I mean, you're still a nurse, right? And what, what are your thoughts about where we are in the pandemic and what's coming? And do you feel more prepared if there is another surge? Yeah, so I'm still a nurse. I still work at the same unit. Thankfully, in New York City, uh, we have very low amount of cases. And my cardiac unit has been what we say clean with no COVID. As of right now, we don't see that we will become as COVID positive as we did before. And I think definitely if a surge were to ever happen again, we may not have the physical PPE that we need or, you know, the physical resources. But I think definitely we do have that mental mindset of, okay, Mm -hmm. we already went through this. I can prepare the way I need to prepare, or I have some facts that I didn't have before. Very interesting. So even acknowledging that there's only so much you can control about the physical stuff, you know, what PPE and the supply chain is available on any given day but you do have a lot of control over your mind and emotions and being ready. That's really inspiring. Any final thoughts for you know, somebody out there who may be listening, who may be considering reaching out and getting help? Any final thoughts? Yeah. One thought that I have had through this entire experience from the beginning to now, and like you said, getting involved with reaching out to other nurses and healthcare workers is that, there are resources out there for you. You know, sometimes they're difficult to find. There are people and therapists who can help. When I first started, I kind of thought it was a little taboo, um, mm. you know, a little, mm. of course, resilience and a positive mm-hmm. mindset is great. But after actually getting into it and reaching out to see all the resources that there are, um, it is extremely impactful and completely life-changing, truly. There are so many powerful things you said, but I think that's one really powerful thing that you did a really good job, I think, explaining, you know, for a lot of people who haven't done therapy or counseling, they don't even know anyone that did it. There, there is this little taboo. And, and part of that is they just don't know what it is, right? Mm-hmm. So when you explain some of the details about, you know, these are people that are trained, just like you're trained as a nurse, this is their job to try to help people break things down, sort them out, come up with specific ideas to manage each one of these symptoms and for you to share your experience of that and how it helped is, uh, is just wonderful. So thanks again, Kristen, for spending the time with us. And uh, of course, we wish you well. I'm sure you're going to do uh, great and good luck. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in a Silent Pandemic, with Dr. John Santo Pietro, executive produced by Kevin M. Lynch, The Quell Foundation, and Mod Worldwide. Managing producer, Sarah Marshall, theme song by Musical Smile. The show is engineered and edited by Scott Waz and Steve Campagna of Philadelphia Post. Assistant audio editor, Vlad Radu, film editor at Mod Worldwide. Voiceover artist, Sinead Doyle. Research and development by Colleen Lowe, Nick Lee, Jessica Ripper, and Caitlin Spurlock. Special thanks to Renee Wilk and Brittany McCormick as associate producers. Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you might hear your review on a future episode. Got a question? Email the Quell Foundation at liftthemask at thequellfoundation.org for sponsorship information or to find out how you can share your story as a guest on a future episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever great podcasts are downloaded. Also, please remember to share this podcast with friends and family who would enjoy this content. This is not a podcast for personal disclosure of suicidal thoughts or behaviors and is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. If you are in crisis, please call 911 or go to your nearest emergency department for assistance. Call 1-800-273-TALK, that's 1-800-273-8255, or text HELP to 741-741 if you're thinking about suicide. The Quell Foundation is a registered 501c3 not-for-profit organization benefiting the over 62 million Americans living with a mental health illness. Tax ID 47 512